0: story that aims to teach a moral lesson. Typically, animals or inanimate objects are portrayed as protagonists in the story, and anthropomorphism, or giving the characters human traits, is employed to convey the desired moral. Fables can be written in prose or verse and may feature other mythical creatures or natural forces as main characters. Okay, okay, that could work. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rock and Roll Fables with Kenny Bodkin. Okay, I got a story for you. The song Like a Rolling Stone, uh, written by Bob Dylan, is considered a masterpiece today. It is usually at the top of any list of greatest songs ever written and has had a huge impact on popular music. In fact, Bob Dylan's original handwritten lyrics for Like a Rolling Stone sold at Sotheby's recently for $2 million. It was released in July of 1965 and is part of Highway 61 Revisited, the classic Bob Dylan album. But this isn't a story about Bob Dylan. It's a story about Al Cooper. Al Cooper, when it was recorded, was 21 years old. Okay, he went on to have a um, a career as a producer. He produced the first three Leonard Skinnerd albums. He um, played keyboards and French horn for the Rolling Stones on "You Can't Always Get What You Want." So, this was at the very beginning of his career. Al Cooper had been playing on different. Um, Recordings as a session musician, as a guitar player, since he was 14. So he had been doing this a while, and he knew uh, the producer, Tom Wilson. Tom was recording um, Bob Dylan tracks for what would become Highway 61. So he invited Al to come over to the studio to just hang out, and maybe, I don't know, meet Bob Dylan but Al Cooper wanted to be on that record, he was ambitious enough to go ahead and bring his guitar, hoping that he could play on a Bob Dylan song, so he shows up with his guitar, Uh, Tom Wilson's not there yet, so he shows up with his guitar, he plugs it in, and he warms up and everything he's playing, and then the other guitar player shows up and uh, sits down beside him and starts playing, and... He realizes in quick succession there that he can't hold a candle to this guitar player. Uh, That man's name uh, is Mike Bloomfield. He ended up playing guitar on on Like a Rolling Stone. Al uh, very quietly put his guitar away and went into the control room where he belonged. And he sat there and he watched while they took the organ player and moved him to piano leaving the organ open so he snuck back into the studio and got behind the b3 organ now the b3 organ is not an easy instrument to turn on unless you know what you're doing but thankfully the guy before him had left the instrument on so the keyboard the, the organ was ready to go so he sat back there and waited uh, hoping not to get thrown out of the session. So, Tom Wilson walks in, Bob Dylan walks in, and Tom's looking around the room and he's going, okay, everybody, we're going to go. Um, and uh, um, he goes, he looks and he sees Al behind the keyboard player and he goes, man, you ain't no keyboard player. And Bob counts it in. And the song starts and they do like three or four takes. And he, his organ playing is pretty rudimentary, but, um, but he plays it through the whole song. He plays the, uh, plays it perfectly. I wouldn't say perfectly. He's about a, um, eighth of a note behind on everybody else. You know, it, it's, a uh, boom, boom. You know, he's not, like, right on time like a seasoned keyboard player would be. So, after that, you know, after they record a little bit, uh, Tom calls everybody into the control room to hear what they've done. And, um, and as it's going, uh, Bob asks Tom to turn the, the mix on the organ up. And um, Tom says, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, man. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, he's not a keyboard player. And, and Bob says, I don't care. It sounds great. Turn it up. And that became the organ piece on Like a Rolling Stone. Al Cooper has played keyboards on albums by by Bob Dylan, several other albums other than the one we're talking about. Uh, he's played with The Who, he's played with Bo Diddley, he played on Electric Ladyland with Jimi Hendrix, um, played with uh, Leonard Skinner, he's played George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Roy Orbison, the list goes on and on, and this November he is going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Isn't that something... Okay, I got a story for you. Chris Christopherson, he always loved country music. There was always a real soft spot in his heart for country music. And um, as he grew up, he wanted to be a a songwriter. He ended up going to college and uh, um, getting a a degree from Oxford in uh, English literature. So... You know, and, and he had a, a very promising career in the military. He was in the U.S. Army Air Corps, and um, he, uh, he learned how to fly helicopters there. He ended up getting a job as a, uh, a teacher at West Point, as a teacher of English literature. Well, at some point he decided to not do that. He decided to give up that job and move to Nashville and follow his dream of being a songwriter. So he gets a job sweeping floors at Columbia Record Recording Studios in Nashville. He meets June Carter there and asked her to give Johnny Cash a tape of his. And she did, and Johnny put it on top of a large pile of other ones that people give him. He was also working at the time as a a commercial helicopter pilot. Help me make it through the night. So before he starts writing any um, any songs of note he's uh, working at, at the studios and he gets a letter from home from his mother and it was a very stern letter that admonishing him for scrapping a promising military career to write songs and um somewhere in the letter uh she referenced johnny cash and it was not flattering and um his mother was basically telling him he had been excommunicated from the family and, and not to come home uh, until he decided to get his act together and uh, quit this music career that he had uh, started well he takes the, he's reading the letter in uh the office of uh, the producer, Cowboy Jack Clement, and um, uh, and Jack thinks it's it's hysterical. So he he says, "Can I borrow that for a minute?" And he takes it and he shows it to Johnny Cash, and uh, you know. And then uh, the next day, Johnny Cash comes in and goes up to Chris, and uh, um, I'm going to do my best, Johnny Cash here. Always nice to get a letter from home, isn't it, Chris? So, legend has it that uh, he kept trying to get uh, Johnny to listen to his demos, and, and Johnny kept putting him off. And so, one weekend, he uh, landed a helicopter in his front yard. Chris Christopherson lands a helicopter at Johnny Cash's place hops out of the helicopter and hands him the demo and that got his attention and he listened to it and the song uh, the song that was on there was Sunday Morning Coming Down. When I crossed the empty street Caught the Sunday smell Of someone frying chicken And it took me back to something Somehow, Johnny Cash loved the song He was, um, at, at the time Johnny was doing his uh, his television show And he decided uh, he would like to record that And uh, play it on the show Well, it has a line in the song a Wishing Lord that I was stoned And um, he tries to, you know, he rehearses it and the network people say that there's no way you can say stoned on TV. And Johnny you know, knowing that Chris was in the audience and this was Chris's first big break, um, he went uh, he went against the the studio and and sang it the way it was uh, the way it was written. Isn't that something? Sunday morning coming down. I saw a daddy with a laughing little girl who he was swinging. And I stopped beside a Sunday school and listened to the song. Okay, I got a story for you. David Crosby from The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Cros- I mean, he had a pretty um, extensive career. From the very beginning, he had an infatuation with the Beatles. Um, loved the Beatles, just uh, their whole happy, upbeat vibe in the early 60s was very appealing to young David Crosby. And the Birds were originally a folk band, and uh, everything was acoustic. And um, as soon as they saw a hard day's night, that changed. They went out and bought electric instruments. They went out and got Beetle haircuts and Beetle boots, the whole nine yards. And they were lucky enough to be able to record Mr. Tambourine Man, a song by Bob Dylan, which gave them the, um, the wherewithal. To uh, you know, build off of that, and they actually got to go play England. They were all kind of frightened that they were actually going to run into these these heroes of theirs, uh, the Beatles. So they had a gig in in London, and this was um, what David would call the worst gig that the the Birds ever played. They. Um, actually broke a bass string. Okay? Uh, (laughs) And if you've ever played bass, you know how thick those strings are and how difficult it would be to actually break a bass string. Well, they managed. Um, And they were... uh, They didn't have all the equipment with them. David had to run his electric guitar through a... um, through a uh, bass amp, which, you know, doesn't give you full range of uh, of tone and everything and it and he felt really bad about you know about the about the gig and uh um and it was in this little pub in uh, in london that had uh you know the the uh the guy who ran the place came up he had like blood all over his apron the place was like full of smoke it was it was a real dive so they get up there to play with uh, with what they got and um He looks out in the audience and there's John Lennon there's Paul McCartney, there's George Harrison there's Mick Jagger there's Keith Richards there's Brian Jones the Mount Rushmore of British rock is sitting in front of him watching him play the very worst gig that the birds would ever play After the gig, um, you know, David was rightfully very embarrassed about. He um, he meets the Beatles and they and they really buddy up with them. They they uh, they uh, take him out for drinks afterwards. They spend a a lot of time with this young American musician. You know, not so much the other birds, but but David specifically. Turns out they heard through the grapevine that David had the best pot of anyone in America, which I, I believe, I don't know if you believe, but I believe, knowing what I know of David Crosby. Um, and it, it turns out in Europe, uh, all, the, all the pot out there at the time was mixed with tobacco. So the idea of someone having a, having a stash of weed that was actually just weed instead of weed and tobacco mixed was uh, was something very very odd back then and they became uh... very close uh... particularly uh... george harrison and david so uh... when the beatles came to america um, they played uh... The, the baseball stadium in la Do- dodger stadium and. Um, David was, uh, David got to ride out, to in the car with them to the, to the gig and, uh, um, a huge stadium full of screaming, screaming, uh, uh, Beatles fans and, uh, George and, uh, David were backstage and, um, David, uh, picks up George's 12 string Rickenbacker and starts to tune it for him, you know, just being a musician pal and, uh, George said, what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm tuning your guitar, man. He says, don't bother. It doesn't need to be in tune. No one's going to hear it. And uh, they went out on stage and played their set. And David uh, stood backstage and listened and realized that George was 100% correct, that nobody could hear whether his 12-string was in tune or not. Isn't that something? You've been listening to Rock and Roll Fables with Kenny Bodkin. We can be contacted at Kenny.D.Bodkin at gmail.com Thanks for listening and support your local musicians.